Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. There'll be two verses for this morning. And as you guys turn to it, I want to introduce myself. My name is Luke Wu. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of preaching the word this morning. Uh, we're glad that you can all worship with us and we can worship with you. As we continue in worshiping God's word, uh, we pray that the Holy Spirit will engage our hearts to really learn and see who this Christ is through this passage. I will read it for us. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. This is God's word. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Before we dive into this word, uh, let's pray together, ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for all that you are. God, we know that you are so holy and perfect, and yet, even in these moments, God, you make yourself present and available to us. God, even just as we've seen in these children, we know, Lord, that you love us and you put yourself in our lives. And so, God, we thank you for this church. We pray for our children now, Lord, when they look back on these type of moments, may they not just see it as uh, something that they were put on a show for, but may they see how even at an early age that you've claimed them for yourself. God, help us, Lord, to realize that for ourselves, that is our relationship with you that ultimately matters. So we do thank you and praise you. May your Holy Spirit guide us in your word so that we may respond and do worship, the worship that you deserve. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, these past few weeks, if you've been with us, uh, we've been focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. And we've been anchored in these two uh, few verses in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 23. And this section of scripture, as one commentator puts it, It's one of the most sublime, most profound descriptions of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so why are we focusing on the person of Christ this Advent season uh, in our messages, our liturgy, our praise songs, and so forth? And it's because we want to get to know the actual gift of Christmas rather than simply the events surrounding it. I know many of you in your community groups which I invite you all to join, even if you're not in one already. I know this week, many of them having their Christmas gatherings. In these gatherings, many of the guys, they have these gift exchanges, Pollyanna and White Elephant, right? And what's the fun that comes from that? It's the act of exchanging gifts, right? The joy and fun that comes when when people randomly draw numbers to pick these random mystery gifts, right? But if you participate in these exchanges and you're really banking on getting a really, really good gift, what happens eight out of ten times? You're not going to get the gift that you want, right? But your expectation when you come to these things is not really the gift, it's the fun that surrounds it, the, 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 the activity, the exchange, the stealing, right? You still have fun because of the event, the excitement that surrounds it. But during this Advent season, we're trying to appropriate our excitement by trying not to get excited only in the event of Christmas or all the related fun things that come with it, but rather the gift itself. Because unlike Pollyannas and and gift exchanges, Christmas is really about the gift, not simply the surrounding events that accompany the gift, like the singing and carols and the, and the chocolate and Christmas dinners. In fact, only when proper attention and focus is given to the gift and only when we see the value and beauty of the gift 
Only then will we be able to maximize the singing, the gathering, all the things around Christmas. Appreciate the gift. That gift being Jesus Christ who came in the flesh and gazed intently at all the intricacies, the characteristics, the power and majesty of Christ. The Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, King of all kings, the anointed Messiah, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, and so on. And appreciate those aspects of the gift that we can maximize the joy and all that Christmas brings. And so we're going to unpack further in these verses, 19 through, uh, through 20. And in it, we're going to see three things. The first is what God does. What is God doing here? Secondly, why it is necessary. So in what God does, why is it necessary for him to do it? And finally, why he does it, why God does it. And that's going to be our outline for this morning. Okay? So let's begin. Number one, what God does. Before we begin, let's look at verse 19 again, and let's read it together, because I think there's value in reading this particular passage uh, together. Ready? For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I'm going to zoom in on this verse, because I'm going to be audacious as to say that this verse is one of the most miraculous truths of Scripture, and one of the most amazing truths for all of man. Kind. I'm going to make that claim. And that's the claim I'm going to make under this first heading. And with any claim, now it's my responsibility to support that claim, isn't it? And so as a starting point, I want to introduce something. Uh, something that an ancient Roman poet once wrote. Uh, his name is Ovid. And he's considered one of the most prominent Latin poets of all time. And one of his famous works, he writes this. While all other living things being bent over look earthward, man has been given a face uplifted, bidden to gaze heavenward and to raise his countenance amongst the stars. Beautiful, isn't it? And let's dissect this together. He's saying that all living creatures, they're designed to be on their four legs or, or on the ground or when they're flying, and they tend to look downward on earth. And more or less, what he says is true. And I'm sure some zoologists will argue that there might be these exceptions, but he's not writing a biology textbook. He's writing poetry. But on the other hand, he's saying that man, as he is upright, his face is uplifted, looking at heaven to raise his countenance, countenance to see what's above us. Now, Ovid, he wasn't a Christian. He lived probably a few decades uh, before even Jesus came to earth. And he had no association with the Jews. But yet he makes this astute observation through this poetic line. And if I was to strip away all the aesthetics of this line, what he's basically saying is all men can't help but want something more than what's simply around us. And what is that more? And when we try to define what this more is, you're going to see it's a little bit flexible. Some people call it the meaning of life. That's what men aspire for. C.S. Lewis calls it the unspeakable joy as we look upward. Others call it purpose or a sense of divinity, so forth. So it's flexible, but nevertheless, all men, all mankind, we want something more than simply what's around us, the biological world around us. And perhaps the best word, I think, that combines all these things together, I think it's the word transcendence. Transcendence. And it's defined as an experience that, that goes past normal limits or the ability to achieve past normal 
limits. And so what this poet is saying is, uh, there's a unique feature in all of us that all of us have compared to animals that we want something more in this life. And let's appropriate this in today's world. Joanna, my wife, and I, we love visiting restaurants that we haven't uh, visited yet. And so whenever there's birthdays or anniversaries, we take the opportunity, I do the research and try to find any uh, worthwhile restaurants we've never been to. Now, in my research, I'm not simply looking at the food or the chef. I'm also looking at, at the ambiance, the decor, the dining atmosphere, the service, as well as anything, perhaps interesting backstories to the restaurant or the chef and so forth. And so all this comes together in a package. And, and when all these things are just right, and then we take the first bite of that nice cut of prime rib, there is a moment when we experience a taste of transcendence. Remember, it's defined as something, an experience that goes past normal limits. Because what's simply normal or just necessary for us is just to eat and absorb nutrients, isn't it? And all that other stuff shouldn't matter. So we go to somewhere like this and we appreciate all the lightings, all the, all the experience, the conversations we had leading up to that restaurant and it just climaxes when we take that first bite. We're not simply there just to get protein and nutrients into our body. On the other hand, if I took a cocker spoodle to the same restaurant and had the same mommy and same decor, same conversation, it was his birthday and we played, uh, put this plate of food in front of it, will it enjoy it? yes. But does it matter the fact that it is so well, uh, nicely decorated, the ambience, the decor, the dressing up for the occasion, the fact that it's his birthday? And to make this dining experience go past the normal limits of just eating meat, which is all that it cares about. It's not going to care the fact that it's honey-roasted baby carrots with a dash of mint. Select cut of prime rib that's aged in-house, doused with truffle sauce and escargot butter, the side of white arugula with squash caponata. Doesn't know all that. And so I think Ovid is right. We humans, all of us, we want something more. It's not just with dining. Now, lately, I've been hooked on these documentaries on rock climbing. There's this one man by the name of Alex Honnold, and he's known for his Free solo rock climbing. And free solo climbing is when you by yourself, without any ropes, without any safety harness, you climb up to the peak. Not an expedition. You are by yourself. And it is one of the most dangerous sports ever. And there have been many free solo climbers who ended their lives because of this, uh, this effort. And I've been hooked on this guy, Alex Honnold, just reading about him, uh, watching documentaries about him. My wife always yells at me when I play this on the TV because it makes her nervous just seeing this guy taking one step at a time. These mountain peaks just makes you nervous just watching him. Now, what made Alex the best free solo climber in the world was that he was the first and only free solo climber to climb El Capitan the mountain peak that you see on your Apple computers, which is 3,000 feet tall. And he climbed this by himself without any rope, no harness, no people around him. 
Now he did this in three hours and 56 minutes, which is ridiculous because even with all that gear, it takes people several days to climb this peak. Now one of the interviewers asked Alex Hano the same question that many of you are thinking, why? Why would you do something like this? And he says that as far as he knows, climbing El Cap is the closest to perfection that man needs to be in order to be successful. Because one small mistake, you fall to your death. And it says in all the world, this is the closest to perfection the man can strive to be. You see what he's saying? Remember what Ovid said. Because when Alex Hano gave this response, what he's saying is he wants transcendence. He wants perfection. He wants to be able to say that I obtained perfection, something that no one else was able to attain. It's the closest thing to transcendence that he can see. And whether it be food, traveling, entertainment, sports, romance, success, art, and so on, all these endeavors, all these experiences, these longings, they all have this common denominator that says we want transcendence. Because in these things, all men, all women, we strive for something more. This one journalist, he writes this. There is within our present society, there's a profound and pervasive sensitivity inside that that something's amiss. There's a deep and desperate yearning for things higher than our modern materialistic society has within its power to offer. He says, buried in the innermost secret place of every man and woman, there is a sense, a disquiet within our souls. And he says, for some, this feeling is very alive and active like Alex Honnold, striving to obtain that transcendence. For others, it lies dormant. A comatose state, having consumed to excess all the cheap pleasures of this world. Yet, there is no question that it resides in us all. Now, I'm going to take a risk of us falling asleep. And I'm going to give you 15 seconds. And I just want to take some time to think, how are you striving for transcendence? From the dining experience, I mean, Alex can keep his climate. I'll stick to my steak for my transcendence endeavors. But take some time, 15 seconds, think, how do you, how are you striving for things like this, this something moreness? Let's do that and we'll continue. I'm going to give you 15 seconds to think about that for yourself. Some of the greatest thinkers and philosophers of all time have tried to make sense of this. Why is this inside of us? And I think Blaise Pascal, he gets it right. He says this, There is in man the mark and empty trace in which he in vain tries to fill from all of his surroundings, but they are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. And Pascal and others can trace all of these longings and desires to be ultimately a desire for God himself, the transcendent one. 
in our hunger and thirst for something more. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In our longing for joy and pleasure, Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you all the desires of your heart. For those seeking transcendence in the way you control your life, control your career, control your children, especially in light of all these uncertainties and anxieties. Psalm 91 says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High, he will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He's my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The list goes on and on and on. For whatever longings and desires that man has, it's ultimately a desire for God and ultimately a desire that only God can fulfill. But all of us try so desperately to obtain all these things, pleasure, joy, excitement, comfort, control, peace, apart from God, as we try to climb our own mountain of transcendence. David Platt, a pastor, shares this story where he was in another country. He was sitting outside of a temple. I think he was in Central Asia. And he was with these two other guys, and these two guys were uh, of different religions. And obviously, he's a Christian. And they're all talking, and they're talking about all their religions, all three of their religions, were fundamentally the same, but just superficially different. And so he was listening for a while, and then he chimed in, and he says this, It seems like you guys are picturing God or whatever you want to call him at the top of this mountain. And we're all at the bottom of the mountain and I may take this path up and you may take this path up, but at the end of the day, we're all going to get to the same place, right? And then they look at him and go, exactly, you understand, this is what we're trying to say. Then he looks back and says, what if I told you that God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find our way up to him? but he actually came down to earth to where we are. And they said, well, that would be great. That's Christmas. Earlier, I made the claim that verse 19 is one of the most amazing and profound verses of scripture because our verse says exactly that. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell the fullness, not just the passing experience or taste of him, but the fullness of God came down on that mountain. And in Jesus, the fullness of transcendence was pleased to dwell with us. Why? So that you don't have to climb that mountain, but rather he comes to you. And when we receive Christ, we can experience him because Christ is the exact image of God, as we read, in whom his fullness dwells. We can have God, the transcendent one himself. Let's continue. Why is this necessary? To see what God does, he comes down on that mountain, but why is this necessary? And as I've been sharing, we've been focusing on these attributes of Jesus Christ ever since verse 15. And just to recap, we saw that he's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, which means preeminent above all creatures. The one before all things, and in him all things hold together and so forth. But then now in our passage today, and starting with verses 19, we start to move from these rich theological truths, truths that might seem abstract. Now we start to come down to earth. So note the transition. If you're looking in your Bibles, look at verse 19. It says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Rich theological idea. 
And then verse 20, through him to reconcile to him all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So do you see the movement? Now it's to this historical concrete event, heavenly abstract to the realness of his death and resurrection. And look at that spectrum. And he's saying that because he wants to make a transition. Paul, he's saying that there's a necessary transition because in order for God in his fullness to dwell on earth with man, our passage says that reconciliation must take place. For that's the reason why the fullness of God came to us, to reconcile to himself all things. And so here, if reconciliation is the purpose of God coming down that mountain, then take a minute to think what the presumption is. It's that you and God are at odds with one another. Because reconciliation presumes hostility between man and God. That hostility comes from you and I trying to obtain these moments of transcendence apart from having God himself. That's the root of idolatry, the root of sin trying to get something we want apart from God and all of your endeavors, the endeavors that you thought about for those 15 seconds, the desires of your heart. And here's the follow-up question. In all of your desires, would it make a difference if God was in the picture? Can you have your experiences of joy and pleasure in whatever it is, and if God is not in the picture, would it make a difference to you? And whatever aspiration you may have for your family and your kids, the kind of evenings that you want, the dynamics within your household, it doesn't matter if God is in the picture. As long as there's peace and quiet in your evenings and your free time and your children to grow up the way that you want them to grow up. And consider your deepest longings and desires. Can you get them apart from God? And if your answer is yes, you can presume that there is hostility between you and God. Because what is the essence of sin? If we look back to Adam's fall, isn't it when he and Eve both tried to get something transcendent for themselves apart from God? Didn't they, they want their eyes to be opened and to be like God? and yet not have God himself when they took that bite? For any time we try to satisfy our heart's desires and God is not in the picture, we too are trying to get something transcendent apart from the transcendent one. And the wages of that is death. Therefore, we need to be reconciled with him. And Pastor Bill is going to go into more detail what this reconciliation means between us and God next week. But today our passage zooms in on how the whole world, all of creation, is reconciled with God through Christ when he comes into this world. Because if you think back with me, when Adam and Eve sinned, it ushered in all the effects and curses of sin, and they have been brought upon the world. Sin brought death. Sin brought cancer. Sin brought the toils and labors of mankind. It brought the pains of childbirth. It brought the curses of the ground. And now the world and everything as we see it, it's not the way it's supposed to be because of sin, because of that hostility. It affects all of creation. Government, 
rulers, personal relationships to society and its issues, sickness and all its forms, cancer, psychological ailments, racial conflicts, natural catastrophes that devastate mankind. The list goes on and on. May we not forget sin brought that into play. And why is that? Because we as created in God's image, you know, we were tasked with the job to maintain this world to be a reflection of God's perfect glory. And when we as creation stewards and creation's caretakers, when we fell, we brought the world down with us into corruption and futility. Thomas Cranfield says, as long as man, who is the chief actor in God's drama, when he messes up, then all the backdrop of God's drama falls down with him. Creation falls with mankind. So look at this verse in Isaiah. He says this. And think about the world today. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth, their language. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting God. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and the inhabitants we suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and a few men are left. And as a result, in order for the fullness of God to come into the sin-plagued creation, taken upon the flesh of man to be received by sinners who want initially nothing to do with him, reconciliation must take place. And that reconciliation took place on the cross where Jesus died and shed his blood because of our cosmic transgressions against our maker. And you see, when we are reconciled with him, the world around us, they too will be reconciled with Christ. That's what Paul is saying, because there will no longer be broken relationships, sad Christmases, tears from death and sickness. And that's precisely the reason why, as we speak, all of creation, it groans in frustration, awaiting the coming of Christ. And that is exactly why when Jesus was born on Christmas Day, You see, not only the angels were singing, but all of creation was singing because it was waiting for that reconciliation. So consider these words. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods and rocks, and hills, and plains, they too repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. This Christmas season, in many ways, I know that our sensitivities to to all the sorrows and frustrations will be very much heightened these coming weeks. Loneliness, frustrations with people, in-laws, family, our work, all that we see on the news. But let us be reminded that is exactly the reason why Christmas happened. 
to remove that curse as far as it's found and make his blessings flow. And those blessings, brothers and sisters, they are available to you now, all who receive Jesus as king, because the first place where that peace and blessings start to take place is in your heart and expands. It begins this work of transformation, and he promises he will complete it. Let's continue. Finally, why does God do this? We saw that he comes down on the mountain, the fullness of his transcendence coming to us. We saw why it's necessary because of the hostility that stays between us and God. Now let's think, why would God do this? Why would God come into the world that is hostile against him? The world that we messed up. And that's what we're going to look at. So consider with me what's actually going on when we say that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ in this incarnation when he came in the flesh. Because think about who God is. He's God of the universe. God of the countless stars and galaxies in the sky. The one who with the word of his mouth created all of creation into being. The one who commands the morning, to, the sun to rise in this place and to set in this place. Infinite in being and perfection. Invisible, immutable, eternal, incomprehensive, most holy and absolute. Who has in himself all glory, goodness and righteousness. That's the God we're talking about. He has no inherent need to come down here to where we are. So let me add just a few considerations to this. First, it means that in God's coming, he's the one that's taking the initiative in this relationship. In a broken and hostile relationship between him and us and between him and the world. You see, here's the situation. Think about a fight between you and another person, you and a loved one. And anytime there's a fight, the two parties, they are at odds with one another, right? Your enemies, us and God, same. And in order for that relationship to mend, for it to heal and to be restored, what must take place? One of the persons has to take that initiative, take that first step asking for forgiveness, taking that first step to reconcile, right? And usually it's the guilty party that usually is expected to do it. The one who messed up is the one who takes that first step and says, you know what, I'm sorry. And only when that happens does reconciliation take place. But who should take the initiative? The one who messed up. In your relationship with God, who should take initiative and say, I'm sorry? It should be us. But who takes the first step in that manger? God. And a pastor, Tim Keller, once observed that in these arguments, that there's going to be a tension between you and that loved one. And in an argument, the trajectory, it keeps getting worse and worse, right? You start to shout, it starts to get a little bit more devastating. And then as your voice gets louder, you pull out every weapon of argumentation that you can muster up. And think about what's going on. You pull out this weapon of argumentation, what does the next person do? Pull out a stronger one. And what happens when that person does that? You pull out a stronger one. It keeps going down into that trajectory. It keeps getting worse and worse, unless, unless someone doesn't bring out a weapon of argumentation and becomes vulnerable in that second and says, here, I'm sorry. Until that moment of vulnerability takes place from either one of the party, healing cannot happen. 
God came in the most vulnerable way he could by taking the form of a baby born in a manger to these teenage parents in the middle of nowhere so that he can say, let's heal this relationship between you and me. I'll take the first step. I'll take the first blow. I'll come helpless so that you can see I want to be with you. Why would God do this? Not only that, consider in this argument, whenever someone's at fault, who makes the reparations? You know, whenever something's wrong, someone does something wrong, doesn't offend, say that I steal from you. In order for our relationship to be healed, I need to pay you back, right? Reparations need to be made. Someone has to absorb the cost. Again, in that relationship, who should usually absorb the cost? The guilty party. And who absorbs the cost on the cross? God himself. When God came in fullness in Christmas, God takes upon himself all the curses of earth, the holy wrath that you and I deserve against all the injustices of evil uh, that on, that's on this earth, and he absorbs the cost. He takes the first step. Do you see the miracle of Christmas? Rather than us paying the price to heal this relationship, God himself takes the hit, and redemption takes place. You know, that's not it. And if that wasn't enough, this is where verse 19 blows me away. Remember what it says. It pleased him to do so. It pleased him to come in the fullness of life. I can't think or imagine. Okay, God, maybe I can stretch my mind far enough to understand why you did that. But for him to have joy coming into this curse-infested earth, to take that first step to absorb the cost, and to have joy in the midst of all of that. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? That's the question. Why? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch our keeping. I'm going to try to end, trying to answer why God would do this. This is my best attempt. And perhaps this illustration helps. You know, there's a movie it's based on a true story that takes place during the invasion of Normandy in World War II. And it's about a squad of eight troops led by a U.S. Army Ranger captain, played well by Tom Hanks, I think. And they're supposed to go behind enemy lines into the most dangerous and hostile grounds in all of France, all to rescue a private first-class paratrooper, James Francis Ryan. He's only a private first-class soldier. And for these eight men, all in these various ranks, to agree to this special mission, which will inevitably lead to their casualties, and some of them, they actually will die, all to save Private Ryan. Because why Private Ryan is the last surviving brother of three soldiers who died in battle. So let's take that question and ask it to this scenario. So the similar question of why. Why would these eight men do this? Knowing that very well that they're going to take casualties, that some of them might even die. And isn't the answer this? Isn't it for the hope 
that the end of whatever danger and casualty they face, that at the end of it, they can bring a mother's last son back home into her arms. Isn't it for something greater that they're looking for, the hope that even though there will be casualties and death, the joy of bringing that last son back to his mother is worth it. Same with God. Why would he do this? Why would he have pleasure in doing this? And the only reason why anyone would do something like that is that for whatever pain and grief that God's going to encounter, that at the end of the ordeal, there is something that waits at the end that's worth dying for. And for Jesus, the only reason why he would go through life, take upon the wrath of sin that awaits him at the end of his ordeal, is the joy of bringing you back to him. That's worth it enough to go through all of that. And it is precisely because of you and the thoughts, and the guarantee that in his death, in his initiative, in him absorbing the cost, in him experiencing all the brokenness of this thorn-infested earth that he would have you, makes it more than worthwhile for him to be born on Christmas Day. For the fullness of God was pleased to come in flesh so that at the end of it, he could be with you. As Hebrews 12 says, for it was his joy set before him to endure the cross. Do you want to get to know this Jesus who came in fullness, yet born in a manger, knowing that he was pleased to do so, which entailed him to be crucified and for his blood to be shed so that he could have the Christmas joy of being with you and sharing all that he is with you so that you no longer need to strive for transcendence, for perfection, for a picture-perfect life because you already have one. And this is the God of Christmas, Jesus Christ. I invite all of you this Christmas to get to know him for he gave up everything to be with you. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, after we hear from God's word, we take a few seconds where we can all have time just to commune with God, pray to him. I don't know when the last time it was you spoke to him, but perhaps now, in a moment of honesty, tell him, where are you in your relationship with God? Has he been distant? Have you been bitter at him? Let's confess that and let's pray to him. Let's do that now. Perhaps we can confess together saying, God, forgive me for trying to satisfy the desires of my heart without you in the picture. God, this Christmas, help me. God, I need your help to make me to love you, 
to cherish you. Let's pray that as a church. We'll continue with communion. I read the words of that song and hymn, Joy to the World. You know, in its making,